0: At the same time, I see the plagues. When's the last time you, swung about, uh, you sung about swarms of flies and gnats? and This is a unique affirmation experience <laughs> right here. Um, and yet, there's something interesting about it. I remember being in seminary, and Reggie Kidd, uh, the, the man who led, he, he told us a song. I have to... I, Ivar's had it once, printed Ivar's. Do you remember that hymn about the plagues? Um, it was written, it was put together by Louis Bourgeois in, uh, in Geneva, Switzerland, you know, for uh, Calvin. And I remember Reggie uh, having us sing that, and It was just so unusual to sing about the plagues and to sing through them, as we just had the opportunity to do there. But it's a psalm. It's in the Bible. It's meant for the people of God to sing. So he wants us to sing, I guess, about the works that he has done, the judgments that he has wrought. Now, to our text today. Um, And again, our text today is rather large because we're just taking up this moment in history of the ten plagues. And though we read uh, uh, chapter ten of Exodus and thought about the eighth and ninth plague, really we're considering the whole reality of these plagues and what's going on here. Behind all of this, and we've been mentioning over the past few weeks, that when we come to Exodus, we're we're touching something and coming to the story that is so fundamental. It's the meta narrative. It's the under narrative. It's the undergirding story. That lays the foundation for the story of the gospel uh, to to find its context when we see Jesus doing what he 's doing, you would do well to read the Gospels, for example, with the lens of Exodus on your eyes it, you would be surprised to see what comes up. just think of Exodus as you read the story of Jesus in the Gospels uh, and and you 'd be amazed little things that you miss that you just didn 't catch before but but that are, are, are uh, that are popping up in the story. One of the things that we learn in Exodus, but especially here in these chapters of the ten plagues, is that something essential to the narrative is conflict. Now, this is no surprise to us because we've been jogging our way through the Old Testament, and we know that the first passage we looked at was darkness and light. But then the second passage we dealt with was this first gospel promise in Genesis 3.15 and in that little kernel, that little seed of the gospel promise that was going to be planted and take all the Old Testament to grow until finally Jesus Christ comes, that little seed of the gospel, of course, was centered around conflict. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her seed and your seed. He will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. I mean, it's all about war. It's all about conflict. Battle, and we see when we get to the ten plagues. Now we see, if you will, the man of a manifestation, not the manifestation, but a manifestation of the seed of the woman, Israel, and the seed of the serpent, Pharaoh, and his hosts. And when we see enmity between them, shouldn't, we should not be surprised. The gospel message itself ha- is filled. It's just soaked in enmity and trouble, conflict, war. Don't forget, Jesus gives those shocking words, just in case you wonder. Uh, Jesus, the Prince of Peace, says, Do you think I came to bring peace in the world? And everyone says, Yes, (laughs) because the angels sung, remember? Peace on earth, good will to men. Yes, we assume that. And Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And, And we're like, Wait, No. That's, that's not the story we know. You came to bring division. But again, if we know our Old Testament well, then that kind of line makes sense to us. If we abstract Jesus onto a Hallmark card, if we abstract Jesus into into a, some cartoon figure, a Precious Moments figure, then it makes absolutely no sense to us. We're like, no, no, he's the Prince of Peace. He's He's the, he's the gentle... Man, with the, the, the lamb around his neck, the little children on his lap. That's the Jesus I know anyway. It's the Jesus I love. You've got to know your Old Testament. You've got to know that this story, this underlying story, is one of battle. It's one of conflict. It's one of war. It's one of a sword. It's one of division. Right from the very beginning. And hence, our, Old, our, our New Testament lesson today, again, the book of Revelation, Bring us to Revelation 19 where we get a vision, not a photograph, right? It's not a documentary on the end times. It's a vision of the end times. Okay, and you've got to keep that distinction. But nonetheless, the vision is meant to tell us something real, right? And what does the end look like? It looks like battle. It looks like a rider on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth and a rod with which he strikes the nations and calls the birds to come feast on the dead bodies. Talk about unique experiences in churches. We've had a few of them here today in the text and the songs that we've sung. But you've got to deal with this because this is the scripture. Think about the, the story of the gospel begins with a, a, a somebody crushing somebody's head and his heel being bruised and it ends with this champion calling the birds to come eat the bodies of the kings. Is this the Bible you're familiar with? Is this the Bible you read in your devotionals? This is the story that's underlying it all. Now, we have to be careful, though. The conflict is not merely or simply a conflict between good and evil. This is where our culture goes, right? This is where Star Wars goes. You know, it's the dark side, and it's the force. It's good, and it's evil. And it's not that that's not true. And this is where we all tend to go. Okay, we all kind of grant that there's some kind of spiritual warfare... And there's, there's darkness and there's light and there's this cosmic battle. But we do have to be careful because what we can end up doing in this idea of cosmic battle is saying it's sort of God versus Satan. You know, they're the two great uh, uh, opponents. Um, and, and we have to be careful with that because it elevates Satan to a level he does not belong. And it elevates darkness to a level it does not belong There is no rival to God. There is no opposition to him. Everything that opposes him, he holds in his hand. So be careful when we talk about the battle. Let's not make the battle something versus God, and we're kind of wrapped up in it. The battle is something versus us. We are in a cosmic battle. God is in no cosmic battle. I mean, he enters it. He fights it for us in that way. He is. But I, I, we do not want to pit Satan. It's not this battle between Satan and God, this tug of war, but in the end, he wins and defeats him. All of this is down under his sovereign authority, and we're going to get that in this text. So we must, again, approach, whether it's spiritual warfare, the narrative of battle, we must approach through Christian lenses. Christian lenses. okay, To understand that the conflict we are in, frankly is one that we have thrust ourselves into. The, the remember, why is Israel in Egypt? They're there ultimately because they sent their brother down there. Right? They have put themselves in this mess. Yes, the Lord was patient and He was good and He supplied wonderful things for them while they're there, but they're there because of their sin. They sinned against their brother and the Lord used it for all kinds of deliverances and so forth. But that's why they're there. That's why they have this land of Goshen. That's why they're now being oppressed. Why are we in the battle we're in? Why are we under this curse? Why are we under the tyranny of Satan? Why is mankind held in bondage to the slavery of death? Hebrews chapter 2. It's because we allied ourselves with Satan. We chose to trust Satan over God. We chose him as our friend. And God said, thy will be done. Thy will be done. And turned humanity over then to the tyranny of Satan. He turned us over to Pharaoh. He turned us over to the bondage of Egypt. Now praise God he doesn't leave us there. Praise God in His mercy, He's going to come deliver us. But let's remember again, this is not like there's some force opposing God and God's people are now in trouble and He's got to figure out what to do. We've got to understand this whole battle underneath His sovereignty. And this is a judgment that we ourselves are under. And in, so, in many ways, Israel has no one to scream about this other than themselves. So, of course, it moves back to their father their fathers and their bro- brothers, the patriarchal brothers. You know. Okay, so I, I, I want to, I want to just, so I want you to hold those two things. On the one hand, you've got to understand the narrative is cosmic battle. And on the second hand, this is not a battle between God and Satan. This is the battle that we are in and, and God himself is sovereign over. So I have three things I want to speak about here today. First, God's sovereignty over the battle, so we'll rehash that. We've already dealt with that point to some degree. Secondly, the battle itself. And then thirdly, the purpose of the battle. So first, God's sovereignty over the battle. Now, we can use our text here for this. And go back. I encourage you to go back and read through the, the, uh, the plagues. They're redundant. <laughs> They're redundant. Um, so much in the scriptures. Remember when we were going through Ezekiel? And it was like, okay, Bill, another sermon on God's judgment on Israel. And I had to remind you, I didn't write this. I didn't write it. <laughs> You know, it's not like, I mean, and I, if you remember in Ezekiel, I was doing one sermon every two chapters, and you were worn out. I I, I saw your faces when the text came up, and you're like, oh, no, not another one. Yeah, another one. There's 48 chapters in there. It's a long haul. And I was doing every other one, but I didn't write it. The Lord wrote it. and And you remember, perhaps, that I made the point in there that, hey, if the Lord wrote this this many times, it's good for us, right? I mean, the, he must say, you all are not going to get this once, twice, 43 times, we may need 48 chapters here. And it's not the only book that does it. Isaiah has 66, so go, go, go there and read Isaiah. Or the other, <clears throat> we have a bunch of prophets. Or how about the Psalms? Mark was saying that on on, uh, on Wednesday, you're going to do the back end of Psalm 119. I mean, Psalm 119 is long. And pretty redundant. But it's there for us. We need redundancy because we're thick skulled doofuses. Right? We, we need to be told these things. Go read the plagues. I mean, again and again and again. And you're going to think, are you so stupid, Father? It seems so obvious to us. But it doesn't seem obvious in our lives. As again and again and again, the Lord does things, wakes us up, sobers us, patience with us. And again, we kind of harden ourselves. So we need to see it in, I don't want to say, this might not be the right word, when I say cartoonish. I mean, almost like larger than life in the plague. It's not cartoon, I don't mean to minimize it real history and it really happened. It was really severe and it was really awful. But you know what I mean. It's like almost larger than life stories of flies and frogs and gnats and boils and locusts and blood and it's like, get the point. Now, in our particular text, we looked at the locusts and the darkness and I hope that you saw and again, you can go back and check it out, but that God is sovereign over there. Even so much as it said, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It's not like Pharaoh is resisting God here, and God's like, oh, "All right, fine. What else do I have to do? What else do I have in my cabinet here? <laughs> Locus. Right. This is not what's going on in this story. God knows right where He's going with this thing. You'll remember last week when we thought about Exodus chapter three in the in the call of Moses. That God told Moses right there, I'm sending you to go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. But he's not going to let you go, so here's what I'm going to do. Now the God who is sovereign over everything, did not it's not like he knew it's not going to happen just because he looks down the corridor of time. God's relation to us in time is not that way. Where he looks over these events that are really happening outside of him and says, okay, I know what's going to happen in this year. Oh, I can see he's not going to let you go. Okay, let me tell you what I'm going to do. He's not going to let them go because God has ordained that he's not going to let them go. That's why he's not going to let them go. This is not in any way happening independently of God's sovereign authority. And you and I need to keep this in mind in our battles. Now, we might not know why. It would have been a fair question to say, "Look, why exactly are you telling me them go? how about you just deal with it right now? Do we really need to draw this out over 10 places? Well, there's something Israel needed to see in this too. And there's something Pharaoh needed to learn in this. But what we know is that he is sovereign. He tells them in chapter 3, they're not going to let me go. And then even in our text, I at least have three places. There may be four. I may have missed one. Where he actually says, "And the Lord hardens their Now, in Sunday school, we don't have time because I'm already, I, I, we won't have time for this year. But in Sunday school, we can talk about what this means time. And, and how does that square with what Pharaoh says? His own free will. What is free will? And how does it play here? I believe Pharaoh does have free will. And I believe Pharaoh is making real decisions on his own. It's not like Pharaoh is saying, I just want to let them go, and God's like, I'm not going to let them go. Pharaoh doesn't want to let them go, but what we have in the text is that even Pharaoh's sinfulness is under God's sovereignty. And and again, we can flesh this out in some of the way I would say it would be this, that imagine imagine our hearts are like spring-loaded towards evil because of the flaw, right? because of our depravity our, our hearts are just spring loaded toward evil and God's hand is a hand of resistance that pushes back the evil that our depraved hearts and souls would the extent it would go to and God by his common grace kind of compresses that and holds it at bay by his sovereign will so that the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is not God working evil into his heart where he oh Pharaoh's a great guy and he just wanted to let these people go and deliver his people to God said, I'm not going to evil in his heart. Rather, God pulls back his hand and that spring-loaded nature of his heart just rushes to the extremity of what God will let it go to. See, if we think about that, then you have God hardening his heart. But if you go back and read in these plagues, oftentimes there's this play between them where sometimes it has, like in our text, and God hardened his heart, and God hardened his heart, he and then other times you he will hear and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And I think that's how you square that, right? God just pulls his hand back and the sinfulness of, of Pharaoh's heart goes where it wants to go anyway. But the point we're making here and that is so important for us is that this battle You will get all words, laws, and And he said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, I, see this very, my name, might be made great by you. <laughs> the Lord lets Pharaoh's evil rush to the extremities. He lets Pharaoh rise to a position of power, so that he can. Remember the illustration I gave last week? It'd be like me playing basketball with Jake and and saying, Okay, I'll let him get all the way to ten and then now I let you go to ten, I let you beat me ten nothing so that you're one point away and everyone says, Wow, look at that. And then I start reverse dunking on him and you know and and hitting three pointers and just, you know, you know, all kinds of things. Humili- and humiliate them, and in so doing, then, demonstrate the greatness of my, my basketball proficiency. Well, in this sense, though that's a crass illustration, nonetheless, God says, Pharaoh, I, re- I let you rise up. Let the whole world think, there's nobody mightier than Pharaoh. Let the world be in awe in their sinfulness of human power. You get that in Revelation 2. Who can stand against this mighty beast, they will say in the mid-chapter's when the beast uh, is, is revealed in chapter 13 who can resist the beast oh my goodness the beast with his seven heads and ten horns and so forth well watch I raise you up for this very purpose that my power may be manifested in you, so that the battle is one in which God is utterly sovereign over and let us never forget it in the midst of our battles secondly let's think about the battle itself God patiently allows. I think there's other things going on here with Pharaoh's will that would need to be teased out. I don't want to make it so simple that he's a marionette or you know a puppet and God is just working this like computer code in the life of Pharaoh so that it works out this way. God's doing something with the soul and the heart and the will of Pharaoh too as he's doing something with all of us. And God is patient. God does not destroy Pharaoh on plague one. But he draws it out. He teases it out over ten. Not only so that we have to take notice of it, but I think there is a patience. God is patient. And he is slow to anger and abounding in kindness. And he does give opportunity for cooperation and submission. But in fact, Pharaoh will harden his heart. So God is patient. We see that in ten plagues. And God is strategic in this battle. Because they're not random plagues. But he goes after the idols of Egypt. He goes after the gods of Egypt. They worship the Nile River. He kills it and turns it to blood and all the fish in it. The last plague, of course, the chief god. The others are these sub-deities in many ways. But And they come now and they turn on their people. right? But the last one, their god, the god of gods, is Ra, the god of the sun. And in this ninth plague, before he goes after the son of Pharaoh himself and the firstborn of all the land, he goes after their God. And he turns the sun dark. And this is not just a darkness like an eclipse. This is a darkness. You heard it in the text. I want a darkness. They will deal with a darkness they will feel. They see nothing. I don't know what that looks like. Don't ask me for the scientific explanation of it. This is God at work. And he turns the sun dark for Egypt. That is, he's strategic. He goes after their idols. He goes after their gods. He goes after their center. Christina and I were talking. We're both teaching on uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter. And we're both at the, the end of it. And Hawthorne has a brilliant little uh, uh, riff at the end about the, you know, the character. If you know the story in there, Chillingworth, who's, who's just... He's, he's, his whole life is about revenge. He wants to get back at the man who slept with his wife. We get that. But he's consumed by revenge. It's, his whole life becomes revenge. For seven years, he, he's just after this man that has, ha, has, has slept with his wife and, they, and had a child with his wife. And he, his whole life is after just destroying this other man. And when the other man dies... He sort of just withers, uh, Hawthorne says, withers and fades away. As if he was like a parasite who needed the host for life. And when the host died, he had nothing to sustain him. And Hawthorne says, interestingly, at the end of this, it's a wonderful little theological, philosophical riff, because he says, in this way, love and hate are very similar. They both live off of something else. And in this case, the hate that Chillingworth had was really derived its life from this other man so that when it went, he couldn't sustain himself. But Hawthorne says love is the same way. And when we love someone or something, and it goes away, we wither. You find people who, who, whose whole identity and whose uh, love is fed by another human being, and that person goes, and they can't live anymore. You see it. Oftentimes, we're human beings, in some sense, it does come naturally to us. But, But you see it with people who have been married or together for so long and so long, and one goes, and very shortly after, the other goes. I don't even know what it means to be without that other person. Or people who lose their career, and they jump off buildings. Because it's like, I don't know who I am if I don't have that. That is, you take my center away, and I collapse. I have nothing in me. And here, God is going after the center of Egypt. He's, going, he's destroying them by destroying the center. This is, these aren't just random attacks, right? Oh, flies. Hmm, let's see what else. Oh, locusts. Oh, let's turn it dark for a while. He knows what he's doing, and there's a strategic attack at the center. And there are gods and they are idols. And then finally, with the battle, so he's patient, he's strategic, and then finally he's effective. He breaks And we'll get to that when we come back to the 10th plague. But he, he breaks them. But let's think again about this picture as the groundwork for Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ comes as God and Moses. The story now comes together in Jesus Christ. He is the Moses character and he is the Yahweh character. He's the Moses and he's the I Am of Moses. And he comes to do battle. He's not merely, that is, the Lamb of God to be slain, though he is that. He's the propitiation. He's the sacrifice, right? Because, again, Christ is everything in the whole story. But we're really good about seeing him as the Lamb. And that's a good thing, and that's right and absolutely true. But he's not merely the Lamb. He's the Lamb slain yet standing in Revelation 5 with seven horns, which in that image is utter and absolute and complete authority and power. The lamb slain standing in Revelation 5 is the same one who comes riding on a white horse with a sword sticking out of his mouth and a rod by which he slashes to pieces the nations and calls the birds to feast on them. Christ is our warrior and you must have this Christus Victor vision when you look at his work in the ministry, in his ministry. That that phrase, Christus Victor, picks up. It's a a phrase... uh, uh, I think first quoted by, or at least a book written by a guy named uh, Gustav Allen, in which he looks at the ministry of Christ and the atoning sacrifice of Christ as a warrior. As a king. Not just as a priest. He is a priest, but he's also a royal priest. He's a king. And we must have the lenses that look at the ministry of Jesus as doing battle. Do that. Go read the Gospels with a Christus Victor lens. With a conquering king lens. See what you see. For example, why is Jesus casting out demons? There's demons, right? The, the, in, in some sense, he comes to do battle with Satan and with his, the powers of Satan. And he comes to claim it back, the nations, and to purge them, and to cast them out. In Matthew 12, chapter 12, he says, "Unless the, You cannot enter the house of the strong man unless you first bind him. And then when you bind him, you may enter his house and plunder it. And Jesus basically says, that's what I'm doing. I'm plundering the house of the strong man. I'm plundering his goods. I'm taking my people out. But first I'm going to bind him up. Think Revelation 20, in that image where Satan is bound and put in prison for a thousand years, a long time. He comes to do battle. Or think about Colossians 2, the passage that we looked at a couple weeks ago for our word of exhortation, that Christ has come, that he might make a mockery of the powers of, And triumph over them on the cross. The cross is not merely a sacrifice. It is that. As our priest, he's the lamb being sacrificed. But as our king, he's crushing the head of Satan. As the king, he's doing royal battle. He's our David, fighting our great Goliath and slaying him there on the cross. But you have to have eyes to see it. Paul, in Colossians 2, says he triumphs over them on the cross. Or think about our word of exhortation today, Hebrews chapter 2. He came that he might destroy him who for so long held us in slavery to the fear of death. He came to destroy, to defeat, to conquer. Or think about 1 John chapter 3 verse 9. He came that he might destroy the works of the devil. This is Christus Victor language. This is royal language. And again, then think of Revelation 19 and 20. Think about Revelation 19. This is our Jesus with eyes of fire, of pure judgment who discerns his people from those who aren't. And I don't care, small or great, slave or free, captains or whoever, kings themselves who resist him will be laid low. And he will call the birds to come feast on their flesh. It's a tough, tough image. But this is our king. And as Mark said, by quoting somewhere today, either before the reading, or I think it was there, from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Why do they plot in vain? How stupid do you have to be, Pharaoh? How stupid do you have to be, sinner, to raise your fist against the Almighty? But the end of that psalm ends so beautifully. Therefore I warn you, be warned, O kings of the earth. Be warned. Kiss the Son lest you perish in the way. Because he's coming with a rod of iron and he's going to smash you to pieces. This is the story of the Bible that's there if you have eyes to see, if you can break away from the, again, precious moment sentimentality. Never give up the love and the, the grace of God in the cross. But don't forget the cross is an act of violence. It's just Christ bearing that war. It's Christ bearing all the ten plagues. Drinking the cup, the bowls of wrath. Taking Armageddon on himself. So that you can be spared. Never, never pit the love of God against the justice of God. And never, ever, ever pit the New Testament against the old. I was like, well, the old God was so crass, so violent. But now he's got a peace and love and patience. Look at the cross for crying out loud. And think about the end times, which will be the culmination of that event. Christ is the Son who comes to do battle, and He too is patient. Like the Ten Plagues, Christ is patient. Christ doesn't come and just judge the earth. He says, Yeah, I came to bring a sword. But that sword, we're not going to feel in his fullness until the end times. Who knows how many thousands of years it'll be. Forget ten plagues. He's so patient, calling all men everywhere to repent. He's patient. He's so patient that he's willing to suffer in order to gain the victory for us. You talk about patient and kind. He's patient and he's sovereign. Remember what he says when he's going to the cross? to pons of violet. He says, no one. No one takes my life. I lay it down of my own accord and I will take it up again. I know exactly what's going on here. You you are a pawn in my purposes. Pontius Pilate, I raised you up for this very purpose. Caiaphas, you snake, I raised you up for this very purpose. Satan, I raised you up for this very purpose. That my power may be known in you by crushing your head. He's sovereign. He's patient and he is effective. He crushes the head of Satan and he frees us from the bondage that we thrust ourselves into. We are there. We have no one to blame but ourselves that we have death hanging like the sword of Damocles over our heads. But he's effective in liberating. He is our Christus Victor. He is Christ our Victor. Now finally, God's purpose. So, in, uh, his sovereignty over the battle, the battle itself, and then finally the purpose. What, what, what is all this about? Well, he tells us throughout the text, go read them. Go read all the plagues. You'll hear it repeated again and again and again. So that you might know that I alone am God. And he says this even in our text there in verse 2. I'll start in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine before him and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your son's son the mighty things that I have done in Egypt and my signs which I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. That you may know that I am the Lord alone. He punches the center out of everyone's life. At the end, we all crumble. You, you, You build your life around anything other than him It fails, and you, like Chillingworth, will just vaporize away with nothing to hold you. I'm doing this so that you might know Moses, so that you might know Israel, and so that you might know Pharaoh, and so that all the world may know that I alone am Lord. And you know what? You need to know it. You need to know this. This is not a power play by God. This is not something I'm really jealous because everyone else is giving glory to other, God, other, other things, but, but I, I want it. He does want it. He's worthy of it. But this is not a power play. You need this information because you are idol factories, as John Calvin said. I am an idol factory, and we will put anything but God at the center. We will enslave ourselves to all sorts of things rather than submit to God. And God goes after the center, and he attacks it and destroys it. And at the end of the day, Egypt is hollowed out, and the bodies are washed up on the shore of the Red Sea, Pharaoh himself, and the birds will come and feast on them. You and I need to know. And, as this says, we need to proclaim. Because he said, this isn't just so I can show you. You need to tell your son, and you need to tell your son's sons. You need to tell your children, and tell your grandchildren, That God alone is Lord. And tell them the mighty works he has done. Yeah, sure, tell them about the ten plagues. But you know what you need to tell them about. You need to tell them about the ultimate battle that God fought. When he went to war for us. Proving that he alone is victorious. He alone is God. He alone is Lord over heaven and earth. And calling our sons and our sons' sons. And our daughters and our daughters' daughters. To come and to trust in nothing else other than him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this theme. We thank you that you do not leave us enslaved, enslaved under the slavery that we chose of our own free will, our own sinful and rebellious natures, our distrusting natures. We distrusted you and went in league with Satan. We not only ask forgiveness for this, but Father, we ask forgiveness for putting so many other things at the center of our lives other than you. All will give way, but you alone. For you will never give way. Your word abides forever. All flesh fails like the flower of the field, but the word of the Lord abides forever. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Make him alone our hope, our stay, our center. May we look upon this story and the story of the cross and know that you alone are God and that you love us that you're so patient, you're so sovereign. Oh, Father, help us to trust in you, we pray. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.